This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm going to dispense with the fiction. We're recording this on Sunday. This is Thursday morning. Uh, but, Doc, we are here. I'm Scott Phillips, and I'm with me in a later introduction, Dr. Nirvan Mahanti. Doc, we are here to answer. Well, mate, we, are, we have got a lot of mail. We have got a truckload of mail. I've just put them all into a Google Doc, and we could be here until Tuesday trying to answer all these, but we will do our level best. So, g'day, Doc. How are you? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. Mate, I, I know you well enough to know this is your favourite part of our podcasting journey is the, uh, I is love the this. member questions. I, I, love, I love this because it gives us variety and stuff and it actually lets us talk about stuff that other people want us to talk about instead of just yeah. like what I like to rant about, right? Or you like to rant about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't rant, do I? <laughs> well, we don't rant. <laughs> <laughs> Not much. All right, mate. Without further ado, shall we crack it open? Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Okay, first question is from Rob. Rob says, G'day, Scott and Doc. I love the podcast. Thanks for providing such a great service. I've got a question for the mailbag. You've come to the right place, Rob. This is who we are, what we do, and what we're recording. Recently, he says, You mentioned you're not a fan of ETFs tracking the ASX top two or 300, like STW or VAS to index funds because they're too heavy on banks and miners. Then he says, because you aren't bullish on banks and miners, you would expect them to shrink as a share of the total ASX. But wouldn't you still expect the ASX to rise as a whole? I understand our aim is to beat the market, so we should be looking at stocks that will outperform these broad index ETFs, but what about having one to give diversification to your portfolio? I'm just at the start of my investing journey, and we'll be purchasing four or five stocks to begin with, so I was thinking of using VAS to provide some diversification. When I built my portfolio up to 15 or 20 stocks, then I won't care as much. In general, what do you think of using an index ETF for diversification in small portfolios? Thanks, guys. He finishes with hashtag getdoc on Insta. And a PS, how is the chicken coop going? Now, I will, I will answer the chicken coop question, Rob, after Doc has a go at the first part of your question. So, Doc, it's a fair point. So, two, two I mean, this is actually a really complex set of questions put very nicely the first thing is obviously we don't oh, i say obviously because i think our listeners know that by now we don't expect the banks and miners to do spectacularly well but to some degree the same could have been said of the s p 500 if you looked at 10 years ago at exxon ge general motors um whatever old economy kind of behemoths were there to some degree the u.s market has done well not because of the big guys getting bigger but because of the little guys or the medium-sized guys getting bigger and kind of propelling the market forward, isn't there a chance, to, to Rob's point, that we're kind of missing the forest for the trees here, that yes, the banks and miners will suffer, but the growth of everything else may well simply take over the heavy lifting and, and see the ASX rise anyway? Yeah, that's a great question from Rob. It's actually a hard question. So I think yeah. it's a couple of things here. One is, I think it is, in my view, wrong to compare um, or, or to sort of extrapolate. Uh, not say wrong, but it's, it's a little bit of an inaccurate extrapolation to extrapolate from what is happening in the U.S. market to what is happening in our market. And, and the basic reason I say that is the, the sort of U.S. market is, a, is it's like the global equities headquarter. <laughs> so in, in many ways, it does not reflect 
the state of the U.S. economy right. because it actually reflects in many ways the state of the global economy. Just to be fair, I want to inject only briefly, mate, to say that was my analogy, not Rob. So Rob, Rob is not, I'm the one who's wrong if this is wrong, but just, just, just for listeners and for Rob's sake, Rob's all oh, oh, no, no, I, yeah. I was drawing that line. <laughs> Yeah, no, so, um, so yeah, so, no, I'm not saying Rob is wrong, or I'm actually not saying you are wrong, so, but I'm just, I'm just distinguishing between sort of uh, yeah, what a market is. Uh, so the S&P 500, for example, or the U.S. market, roughly, let's, we, say, we, we call it like S&P 500 is the U.S. market, is a reflection more or less of the global economy. As long as sort of globalization is there, then that being the capital of um, global equities sort of has a natural tendency to favor that market. Yeah. Right. And if it is, you know, like the Facebooks of the world or whatever it is, then they're basically gonna, kind of going to be listed there. Right. So the it doesn't ref, it's not reflective of the economies per se. Now, that basically means by definition that many other equities market now that may, doesn't make those equities market bad or anything. It's just that those equity markets then become less reflective of the global economy and more reflective of the local local dynamics. Right. So right, the ASX right. top top end of the ASX, for example, tends to reflect um, sort of the, the, what is happening locally, domestically, right? So the banks are a great reflection of the domestic economy, right? You know, the, yeah. the, the banking sector basically shows how the domestic economy is performing. Now, it's not to say that there aren't global companies on the ASX. I'm not saying that. So like the CSL, which is, you know, uh, one of the largest biotechs uh, in the world, yeah. right? It's listed here and yeah. uh, listed here. But there is a tendency among even Australian companies, and a good example might be something like Atlassian that, you know, decide to list elsewhere. Um, and therefore, if Atlassian was listed here, it would be one of the largest companies listed on the ASX. Um, so I think that is the, the reason why I don't think the, the composition of the ASX, or I can't foresee a composition of ASX 200 substantially changing. That's that's my view. Okay. Um, is is the the global economy might change? We will produce winners like Atlassian, but they may not list here, and therefore the dynamics of them becoming a large component of the ASX 200 uh, seems unlikely. In in fact, the other there's another way to think about this. If the if the banks were actually to meaningfully shrink in size, in many ways it would actually be bad for our economy, but it would be reflective of our economies, uh, in you know tough goings, right? So actually, so that's the counterpoint is that the banks probably wouldn't shrink, banks would not grow. So uh, so that's why I'm not a big fan of the ASX 200. I think the dynamics of the ASX 200 overall is such that um, it is going to be led by the banks and the miners. So one of them is a price taker, the others are not growing. Um, right, but most of the benefit that you're going to get in the ASX 200 is probably the tail end of the ASX 200. So that's that's that. Um, that's that all said. Like you know, for example, we invest in some of the smaller companies. Actually, across the full, uh, the monthly full, a lot of our recommendations are outside of ASX 200. They are even sometimes outside of ASX 300. Uh, you know, in so in extreme opportunities, for example, they're outside the ASX 300. Then what happens is you might see companies list, which might even be global companies. They're listed outside. Uh, of Australia, but they're listing here because the capital market is um, is efficient enough and welcoming enough of those smaller companies, right? right? But those for those smaller companies to, you know, first of all, there's a higher fail rate among smaller companies to become large, right? Just by definition. And for the sum that are going to become large, it's going to take time, right? So you can't yeah, expect, yeah. I don't think a decade is, you know, so uh, a decade seems too small a time 
in in sort of my understanding to say that you would you lose the dominance of the banks on the ASX 200. Mm. So yeah, so that's why I don't find the ASX 200 particularly attractive as a diversification um, tool. That mm. said, if that's the way, if that's the only tool you have got on your hand, or that makes it easier, yeah. that's how you're going to invest in the market. Then by by all means, because yeah. it is yeah. still it's still it is a, it's a step better than being in cash, right? It's a step right, better right, than right. being not diversified um, as long as you're aware. And then, you know, if that gets you interested, that gets you invested, it still gets you compounding your returns. Eventually, if you become interested, then, you know, you, you buy individual shares. So, mm-hmm. so that's how I, I look at it to answer that, that question, I think. Nice. I'm, I'm going to take a slightly less bearish or, or maybe say more bullish view than you, um, but, but also agree with your broad point. I think, you know, we could have said the same things arguably a decade ago in the US and not foreseen the size of the changes. Um, two people like us could have been sitting around saying, oh, gee, he's not going to fall by that much. And the, the tech company's already pretty big. They can't grow by that much. Um, the, 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 <laughs> the, the future has a way of making us all look silly. Uh, I, what I will say, though, to, to your point, and, and Rob, to answer your question, is the banks are, are much bigger and the miners are much bigger as proportional dominant um, sectors than anywhere else in the world. And so the sheer reality is even if the banks were to become 20% rather than a third of the market, the, the, the size of that, the sheer dollar value size of that change is going to be hard for any other sector or any other company to make up for in the short term. It is so, that the kind of barbell idea, the fact that the very, very few are so big, it, it's hard to imagine the rest of the 300 or the rest of the 200 growing at a fast enough rate to offset the fall or just the stagnation of the big guys just because they are so enormously massive. Um, that, that's, that's the hardest part. Even, even if directionally you're right, I think you are. I think, look, there's a point in time at which the banks are not any inside the top 10 ASX companies in all likelihood. But to Doc's point, that might be 10, 15, 20 years away. And the, the handbrake on the index may well be, be meaningful in that period of time until the, the grower, growing companies get big enough to exert enough influence. The only time that might change, and this is a speculation, is if we had, for example, some big, large company listings all of a sudden, some big floats that were multi-billion dollar floats. Now, I can't even imagine which companies they would be. They're probably likely to be overseas companies. I mean, I guess if we privatise Australia Post at some point or Visi, came on the bourse or something, you know, you might see some, just in terms of size, some change like that. Medibank was probably the most recent one. So yeah, is it possible? Yeah. Is it likely? I don't think so. I think to Doc's point, that's why we shouldn't expect too much out of the out of the 200 or 300 while the banks are shrinking as a proportion. They're simply too big. The, the, the analogous example is Telstra, right? I got Telstra wrong as a stock picker. Uh, right directionally, the broadband fixed line business is shrinking, mobile is growing. I think that'll still be the future. What I hadn't allowed for is the, the, the pace of change wasn't fast enough. The decline in broadband continues and fixed line continues. The growth in mobile isn't fast enough. So even though directionally, and that's kind of analogous to the ASX, right? The, the broadband fixed line is the banks and miners. The mobile is the small growth companies. Um, it, it, the, the, the change I foresaw is happening. It's just happening way too slowly. And the, the size of the stuff, the size of the big business that, that, it, that, is, that is falling is just still way too dominant it's having an outsized impact on the rest of the company. So that maybe is an analogy I'd probably go with. Um, Doc, just a quick one then to, to finish up Rob's question. Even, even what we've said notwithstanding, for, for an investor who wants the benefits of diversification, who's just saying, look, I only got four or five stocks, I get diversification, maybe I'm a little bit, I won't put words in Rob's mouth, but maybe I'm a little bit worried about volatility, maybe I, I'm a little bit worried about company specific 
gee, I pick four stocks and if I'm wrong about a couple or the market hates a couple for a while, it, isn't, it, isn't it at least worth having a, a, a diversified ETF as, as an anchor position while he builds out the rest of a portfolio just to save him from those psychological and, and market volatility elements? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I agreed with that. I said basically like, look, <clears throat> if that's how you're going to get started, you get the absolute benefits of investing. So you could, you know, you could pick, you could pick any index, right? You could pick the ASX 300. Um, you know, our preference has been ASX 300. You could pick S and P 500. You can yeah. just pick broad indices. <clears throat> There's an all world um, in index as well, which is you know, um, um, yeah. which would and not and not just all world ex Australia. This is basically all world, all world. I think it's available from iShares. Um, okay. um, so BlackRock, um, you could pick that. Then that will basically give you global, uh, sort of like, you know, the top whatever 4,000 or 5,000 companies in the world by market cap. It should include some of the Australian banks, but in a much smaller proportion, you could do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, so you could pick any number of, you know, just pick in a couple of different indices, which give you, um, you know, maybe pick two, It'd give you some diversification of the bat and then get you invested. And then, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole point, I guess, would be that if you, if that's all you're going to do, then, then that's good. Maybe having two or three different indices and then just mm -hmm. diverse, just having cash into that is good. But then eventually you want to probably get into as, as, as Rob is saying, into individual uh, stocks. And, and that's where, you know, that's where I think you can, you know, you can go small, you can go, you know, fishing small, fishing big and, and things like that. Um, so I think that the directionally, I, I love that strategy. Yeah. Um, index is a good place to start because it is simple, straightforward, yeah. and and gets you going. It gives you all the benefits that you'd want from, you know, broadly speaking, from investing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, directionally, I think I agree. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I agree too. I think, uh, to your point, mate, I think any uh, any ETF is working. Look, for Rob, I say, yeah, just do it, right? Like, you know, in terms of, if that's what he's kind of keen on, again, we can't give specific advice, but if that's what's already in your mind. You've already kind of decided you want to. Um, that, that's going to give you a level of conviction that's going to help you even, even when things get volatile. So I think do it. I agree with you, Doc. I think that there is there are other ways of diversification which are probably more balanced. I think an all-world or an all-works Australia or a US that might be useful, as you already talked about. All right, let's move on to the next one from oh, – actually, hang on. I've got to answer my PS question, don't I? How's the you haven't answered that, yeah. What happened to the chicken coop? Now, if fools, if you want a reason to follow me on social media, and Doc, but but I, I um, if you want to follow me on social media, go to my Twitter account. It's at TMF Scott P. You'll see a couple of photos there of my misadventures trying to build a chicken coop. I cut the end off two sawhorses while I was cutting some plywood last weekend, the weekend before. So if you want to have a laugh at my expense, feel free. As a carpenter, I'm a very good investor. Put it that way. Um, that being said, the chicken coop's coming along. If you stay tuned, Rob, I reckon, well, it depends on what the rat weather's like over the weekend, but maybe this weekend, maybe next, I might get it finished and get some chicken. So if you are keen to find out whether or not I keep my fingers and whether or not the chicken coop gets built, there's a good chance maybe this weekend or next you might hear some of that. All right, enough, enough of my uh, self-indulgence. Thank you, Rob, for asking them. Question from Craig, Doc. I, I like this issue. This, this, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on Craig's uh, supposition here. He says, hi, Scott, it might just be me, but I'm enjoying the new dynamic in the podcast. You're coming across as a kind and caring man in a crisis, and Doc is coming across as such a butt kicker. I don't know, mate, what do you reckon? <laughs> is, that, is that a, is that a fair I like, summary? 
I, I think it comes across as uh, pretty accurate, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, Doc is very kind and caring in other contexts, not always when it comes to finance, put it that way. <laughs> All right. Um, so he says, this COVID-19 virus has got me thinking. Could a virus of a different kind, a man-made virus like a computer virus, ever render the internet unusable? Or an environmental disaster like cosmic rays from the sun ever make our computers unusable? As a as, as hard man doc is a man of IT, maybe he has an opinion. Silly question, but I wonder how far we should go in preparing for risk. I think if our IT systems ever went down, my portfolio would be worthless. And those people who store lots of toilet paper would be looking so smart, full on Craig. I have not thought about this as a kind of a, an existential problem. I guess we know malware is out there. We know ransomware is out there. We know that the US and China are engaged in kind of underhanded subterfuge and kind of, you know, um, online sabotage. How worried are you, mate, about the, the risks from some more widespread? I guess, you know, at some point, if, if, if the Mac or the Windows OS was ever to be meaningfully compromised or, or, or there was some other virus or something else, it's not impossible, right, that we could end up with days, weeks, months of kind of ATMs not working, traffic lights not working, um, computers, car, I mean, you know, the, everything is so computerized these days. You've got a bike, you're probably okay. And if you grow your own veggies, you might be okay. But other than that, things could get tough, couldn't they? Yeah, it's a great question uh, from great um, uh, from Craig. Actually, I love it. Um, I, I think there's there's you know there's one sort of okay, to, to go back. I think his question is: Can viruses or something affect computers? They absolutely can. Um, I think one of the brilliant things, and this is by design uh, of the internet, is when the internet was designed back in the '60s, late '60s, as ARPANET. One of the core tenets of its design was. Uh, it is basically a distributed system. Right. And one of the beauties of a distributed system is it has got no centralized core. Uh, so, yeah. so it is really hard to knock oh, off the entire okay. internet. Okay. By design, the internet is pretty false tolerant. What about things like look can, up, DNS lookups and stuff? Is that not a central that, database somewhere or? Yeah, there, there it is, but there are hundreds of those databases around the world. You know what I mean? Like okay. you can, you can. I mean, they, you there are many DNS servers running, right? Oh, so right okay. Google, Google runs them. Open DNS runs okay. them. So many other people run them. So you could, in theory, knock down parts of the internet, but it huh. is really incredibly hard by design by some smart people. Um, you know. Uh, distributed by nature, and, and I'll add one more thing. This is this is again. Uh, uh, this is one principle that is found in the design of a lot of things in computing is distribution. Yeah, it's basically okay. the, the whole idea that centralization, which was the, which was the typical way of doing things in the fifties and the sixties um, mm. vanished and became, everything became distributed. <laughs> so even, even now, even if you think about that, if, even if you think about things like cloud, for example, um, and Amazon web services, for example, they've got, yeah, their right. uh, cent data centers and, and their, you know, the farms, the server farms that have got compute storage farms, they're distributed across the world. You, it is virtually impossible. Uh, I wouldn't say impossible. It, is in, it <laughs> would require incredible work yeah. uh, to actually take down the whole thing. Uh, yeah. You could take down parts, and it has happened in the past, things that are, you know, but you know, what they would very quickly identify which parts are down and then, you know, they were probably isolated very quickly and then, you know, uh, basically quarantine that part. So internet by design is very, very fault tolerant computers by design therefore are 
you know, because you are connected to the internet and therefore you can't affect everyone. Um, it I is possible. Now. After reading Craig's question, I was kind of freaking out, but you, you've, you've made me feel much more comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, it's amazing. You can't, you can't have coronavirus really. The coronavirus equivalent for computers is really hard. Um, <laughs> uh, it's really, really hard. So, you know, okay. a society might be fragile, but computers are relatively speaking less fragile. Um, yeah. is, everything is possible. Um, and, and then you could have these, um, you know, specific attacks it's very hard to attack a proprietary system like, uh, say, macOS, for example, because okay. it's a proprietary system. Even if it's built on, uh, built on the sort of the Berkeley distribution for Unix BSD, it's still it's still a proprietary system. The iOS is a proprietary system. is again hard. So it's hard, you know. And then there's less malware because of the way um, the app stores and things work like that. It's a little bit slightly easier on on Windows, but again, there too. I mean, you know, I, I think if you look at the entire infrastructure and how it works. Um, relatively uh, less. The, the closest we came to, uh, you know, um, the uh, like, you know, the end day was the Y2K problem back in 2000, right, yeah, okay. where where the dating system, where because of the way the dates were written, it was assumed that you know we would we would not be able to deal with the date <laughs> change, and the entire thing would collapse, and then billions and billions of dollars were spent trying to fix it, and it turned out yeah. to be not a big deal. So it's incredible, huh? Yeah, it's incredible. So it's, in that case, the, the, uh, the greatest downfall is probably something we've inadvertently coded across all computers rather than something that kind of gets us from the outset, right? Like it's, a, it's sort of inherent in the, the way it was built rather than something that can, someone could do from the outside. Oh, I think so. Like, like I, I don't think there's a, yeah, I think like there is no real, like there's always risk of viruses and, you know, right. like somebody, uh, you know, scammers and um, people taking control of your machines. And, but, you know, bugs get very quickly reported these days and fixed. Um, uh, yeah and it's very difficult it's easier to compromise end users and it's much harder to compromise systems and uh, things especially that run in the you know in a cloud setup or or distributed across the internet Um, those are harder to take down you know you could take down a particular bank's uh, infrastructure because they run it on premise and it's probably not secure and things like that right that could happen but Mm -hmm. it's it's much harder to take down modern infrastructure yeah, makes sense. Nice. That's good. I'm glad to hear that, mate. I'm finishing this conversation question a whole lot better than otherwise. So the, the people hoarding toilet paper aren't the smart people. The people owning computers are the smart people. Is that what you're telling me? No, all I'm saying is that if toilet paper is not available in two weeks, then they're still smart, those people who have hoarded toilet paper, right? So <laughs> I'm not passing judgment on toilet paper yet. <laughs> in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, toilet paper still comes before computing power, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm not saying anything yet. Have both is the answer. Have both. Have got both. A, got a, a message from Nick. Uh, Nick, this is more a question than a comment, uh, than a question, but I'll share it. You know, Nick share it with us. G'day, Scott and Doc. Just read a comment on an assessment of Australian equity ETFs. The FAIR ETF from BetaShares, F-A-I-R, is an ESG fund, which is an environment, social and governance fund. Held up extremely well over the last two and a half years or so. Compared to other indices, including you mentioned VAS, MVW, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, cheers, Nick. He says, P.S. I agree largely with previous commentary on ESG investing. Example, for every buyer, there's a seller, et cetera. But the performance of FAIR stacks up well over time. So there you go. There's another option. Um, I will avoid editorializing on that one because I'll spend another 15 minutes talking about ethical investing. Um, but there you go. It's one ETF that has done reasonably well over that period of time. All right, mate. I, you know, do you have any thoughts on that before I move on to the next one? No, really, I have no thoughts. And I've not looked at it, so I, have, I can't really give any intelligent comments. Same, but, but I thought we'd just share Nick's, Nick's thoughts, Nick's regular correspondence. Yeah, absolutely. 
for, uh, for sharing that one. Question from Tegan. We love questions from female listeners. Podcast question. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a fool too. And a little smiley emoji. While only a recent one, I'm a member of Motley Fool Share Advisor, Dividend Investor, and Extreme Opportunities. And I've learned so much from all of you already. So first up, thank you so much for your help and guidance. Tegan, we're, we're, uh, we're humbled and we appreciate your kind words. We also are, are pleased we've got other help, mate. So thank you for, thank you for, the, uh, for the comments. She says, now onto my question. Hubby and I were employees of Woolworths back in the day. And the company gifted us 75 shares each for their 75th anniversary. Hubby was also a manager at the time and had the option to buy 350 shares for, get this doc, $2.50 each. Whoa. Here's the best bit, which he took up. Taking your hubby's Whoa. a very smart guy. We then, this gets smarter, mate. We then enrolled the shares into the DRP, the Dividend Reinvestment Plan, and just left them. We now have close to 800 shares. How good's that? It's fantastic. It's cool in so many different ways, right? So here's a nice one. They started with 150 shares. He bought 350, so he had 500. They now got close to 800 shares because of the DRP alone. I reckon that's, you know, the value of dollar cost averaging and dividend reinvestment, though, we often would say take the cash and make your own decisions. But people who just simply said, you know what, I'm going to let it do its thing, their share count's growing by 60% just to the DRP. That's, that's really, really cool. All right. Hubby recently wanted to sell them when they were 40 bucks a share, but I stomped my foot and said a loud no, as I believe the company is in a strong position for the long term, especially now with everything that is happening. And we did talk on Friday about the gross sales growth of 13%, which is just phenomenal. 11%, sorry, which is phenomenal. I've learned a lot about long-term goals and investments from you and wonder what your thoughts are holding Woolworth shares for over 15 years. Thanks, Teagues. Teagues, thank you for the question. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, mate, you, you should be telling us what to do. You, you, got, you have you done spectacularly well building a nice little nest egg there, just simply holding the shares, letting DRP do its thing. So that, that, that is in itself a, a poster child, a poster example of what long-term dollar cost averaging dividend reinvestment can do for a portfolio. So mate, well done, spectacular result. All right, Doc, so all that said, if you were, well, again, we can't give specific advice, Woolworths, buy, hold, or sell at the current price. Okay, it's a good day to Tegan, and this is absolutely fantastic. This is, I'm thrilled to actually, you know, this is, this is total success. So congratulations. Cool, yeah, super cool. So here, here's, okay, I, I wouldn't give a buy sale. I, I'll actually take this question and answer it differently. But what I would say is look at your entire portfolio, right? And, you know, these 800 shares are actually a pretty substantial amount today, right? Um, now, if you have other holdings and they add up and Woolies is a small proportion or a smaller percentage of the total holdings, um, then, you know, I would be okay holding them. I mean, I would think about it in that fashion. But if it is, if it turns out that this is a very substantially large position, um, you know, and large is a, is a is is a variable thing for different people. But let's say you yeah. know, let's say twenty percent or more for, of your portfolio. Then I would say that in just for the sake of diversification, I would be considering moving some um, of the capital. So to, you know, trimming, selling over a period of time, not necessarily quickly because again, you know, this is a large stable company and putting it into other assets, just from a diversification point of view, I think that makes sense. Um, would I would I be buying Woolies? Like, I, so here's the, the problem with answering that question is I am not a Woolies type of investor. Um, <laughs> so I would never be buying Woolies you know, in my portfolio. 
So um, for me, the answer would be no. Uh, but I, you know, so I can see someone buying. You know, this has a per three percent yield yeah. uh, on a you know a PE of eighteen. Um, it's probably not super cheap, but it's not super expensive. It's a company that is going to you know stand the test of time. They're diversifying into online. So I mean, it's a solid company. It's not going to grow very fast, but probably you know that's baked into the price. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I would look at this more as a from a diversification point of view than as a you know should I be in or out of it, um, right? And and then I, I totally realized that you know if you've held this for so long, it's there's a large capital gains associated with it. So and and based on when you bought it, maybe the capital you you pay no capital gains <laughs> depending on on yeah, when it was purchased, right. when it was purchased, and uh, so there might be a whole heap of other considerations that you know uh, need to be taken into account, um, but. Yeah, like so, I would, I would handle it from that sort of viewpoint. Nice one, Matt. I like that. I think, um, yeah, there's so many ways of, of, of kind of addressing this one, right? I think, Teeks, I, I got to say, I don't expect Woolworths to be market beating uh, from here. I think it's a reasonably priced, reasonable growth company. You're right about the sales growth. We just talked about that so far, but when things get back to normal, growth will be back to a couple of percent a year because. There's only so many, once we've all got our toilet paper and rice and pasta, there's only so much we can eat, right? And so Woolies will keep growing moderately. Um, the price is okay. Perfectly fine investment to hold. And I think, so look, is it going to beat the market? I don't expect so. And if that's your view and you could beat or match the market with something else, then if your job is as an investor to buy the best assets you can and hold them to maximize your returns, I don't think Woolies is in that list. Now, that, so that's, quick, that's answer one. Answer two is along Doc's view. Now, I wouldn't necessarily sell to diversify, particularly if you can add to your portfolio over time. So depending on your age, and, and I'll assume from your Facebook photo that you're, uh, you're younger than maybe Doc and I are. Um, maybe not, I'm not sure. Maybe just aged well. Uh, in any case, if you've got a lot of time left and you're adding regularly to your portfolio with other stocks, you may not need to sell to diversify. You may be able to buy something else as well as the Woolly shares you hold and get diversification that way. So, but, but I agree with Doc, you should be diversified. I don't think you want to take company specific risk. I don't know what frankly causes a whole lot of drama for Woolies. But remember, of course, the shares went from 40 down to, was it 22 at one point, Doc, I think? Just because the business was kind of reasonably, I'll say badly managed, I think it's fair to say. Um, so, you know, you can lose money on Woolies, even though the business itself is stable, the share price can move around. And frankly, there's nothing to say Woolies can't trip over their own feet and, and destroy some meaningful value. So you want to be diversified. Last thing I'd say, honestly, though, is, to some degree, if you've made money doing this and you're happy to let it run, I, I see no reason not just to let it run. I mean, yeah, we think as a matter of article of faith, the way we approach investing, we're looking for beating the market. So kind of, you know, I don't think I'd be buying Woolies to beat the market. But gee, I mean, if, you, if you've made this money so far, you've got 800 shares, you're still in the DRP, you're going to keep getting that dividend. Um, who's, who's to say you're not going to have 1,500, 2,000, shares when you retire and, and that adds up to a whole lot of money. So I'd be loath to tell you to sell them because you're comfortable, you're happy with what you own, you feel like it's a good business, you feel like it's doing well. Again, as we so regularly talk about, those behavioral temperamental aspects of investing are so valuable, so important. I reckon that's probably something I would suggest. So, you know, again, it's hard, right? Financial advice that we're supposed to give is supposed to be here are the best stocks to buy, and that's absolutely what we do. So for some people, for many people, the best advice is, hey, buy what you're comfortable to hold as long as they're quality businesses. And I do think Woolies is a quality business at the end of the day. Any more from you, Doc? Uh, no, I think you covered it all. 
Do you have a question from David, mate? I don't know if you know this. Do you know Ramsey Healthcare, mate? Have you followed Ramsey Healthcare at all? No, I, I just know that they're into hospitals, private hospitals. All right. So David says, dropping you and the doctor a question for Sunday's mailbag. Getting your thoughts on Ramsey's $1.2 billion capital raising. The money is said to be to clear debt, strengthen the balance sheet, and liquidity position. What are your thoughts on a long-term view, and is it an opportunity to buy? Full on from David. So, mate, it is in private hospitals, both here and overseas. Do you have a, an investment view on Ramsey Healthcare? I have a view that any company that needs to raise so much capital because it's in a bad position <laughs> has a capital allocation problem. At <laughs> so, so, so that's all I'm saying. I actually haven't looked at the company at all, but you know, anybody who is raising capital in a hurry right now um, has some capital allocation things that you know their boards need to sit and think okay. about. Um, so that's all I would say, but I haven't looked I at it. I think that's probably fair. I think that's probably fair. I'm going to kind of agree. Look, it's a buy for us at Share Advisor right now. Um, has been for a while. It's actually underperforming the market for us, so that's a bit disappointing. Uh, actually, I wonder, maybe it has. No, it's still underperforming. I was wondering whether it would come good with the market falls recently. Um, it's, it's been a disappointing position to come here, I have to say. I, we didn't recommend, we won't recommend our members um, take part in the capital, capital raising, basically, because we don't think the value is huge, so, so great that you want to add to your position in Rams if you have one. Um, I think it's a terrible business. It's a relatively defensive business. But of course, one of the things that happened in the last 12 months is we realized when the economy is soft, people actually do defer elective surgeries, particularly in private hospitals. Um, again, it's amazing how recessions or downturns or simply just economic kind of, you know, uh, slowdowns make you reconsider what you kind of previously thought. There was always the thought that medical procedures are largely, you know, kind of not inevitable, but you've got insurance or you're going to a private hospital, you're probably going to keep doing it anyway. You need the hip replacement, you're going to do it. Turns out that's not the case. Um, so Ramsey hasn't been a great investment. It's also not doing as well internationally as we thought it might. It's got a lock here. It is a bit of a mature business looking for growth. Hasn't found it yet and that's hurting it. So it's a buy for us at the current price, um, but I wouldn't be adding money to the capital raising. Any your stock? No, I think that you covered it. Beautiful. Here we go. We've got a question from a female listener. That I, I said on Friday, mate, that a way to get your question answered is to be relevant or to be interesting or to ask us something we haven't covered before. Another great way is to be a female listener because we have too few women in investing. Uh, they are better investors than us blokes, it turns out, but don't, don't share that too widely, especially to the boss. Um, but we're always excited to, to get a question from a female listener and we will almost always make sure they get answered on the podcast. So Lauren asked this question, mate. She says, a question from, uh, for the podcast from a female listener. Please use my first name only. Lauren, we've done that. I've, I've succeeded thus far in that one. I listen to your podcast from France, both as a touch of home and to learn about shares given that's where our super is. I have a question for you to make you really jealous. I would like to ask about investing for our five and two-year-old kids who have decades ahead of them. It will only be a very small amount at first, birthday and Christmas money, and we are happy to start with index funds until they are older. We're looking at a thing called Goodman's as an Australian micro-investing platform to invest in the US and get fractional shares with small amounts with sustainability and good governance rating on the investments. I do note Scott's position on ethical investing and possibly accepting lower returns, but you also speak often of the sleep at night test. In my case, it's the explain to my children test that in 30 years, our money, tiny as it may be, hasn't been used to frack their earth. I can't argue with that. I can open the account in my name at TFN, sell some at some point in 30 years and give the kids the cash, which would trigger a capital gains event. Or I can open it in my name and an informal trust in my child's name, then their TFN, when they're 18, transferred the shares to them. 
I understand the current law would mean no capital gains at that point. When my child then sells the shares, uh, there'll be a capital gains event anyway. Yes, there will. We're stuck in France in lockdown currently, and so getting a TFN for the kids just got more difficult. I would appreciate your thoughts both on the Goodman's platform and investing in children's names. By the way, we also, hashtag got a better rate, got a slight discount, 15 basis points, and a sob story from our major bank about overhead costs of branches compared to the online banks. I appreciate your time and your seemingly endless patience for newbie investor questions. Thanks, Lauren. Lauren, awesome questions. It's a hard life being stuck in France, man. I reckon I can cope with that right now. Hopefully, hopefully they're in wine country somewhere in the, uh, I, I don't know, anywhere really pretty, pretty much in France, the south of France maybe, or over in the, over in the east. Uh, plenty of good places in France to be stuck this time of year. Well, I yeah, I hope they're not uh, stuck in a major city, um, you know, stuck somewhere small. Uh, stay safe, Lauren. Stay safe, yes. Um, yeah, I, I don't know anything about this platform, so I don't have any opinion on yeah. um, that platform. In particular, I've never looked at it, so I don't really know. In, in terms of, like, uh, like, what can I say? You're investing, you're giving your kids a, a solid like 25 year, uh, year uh, head start that is just fantastic um so i think that's that's brilliant and and that you're doing that in in terms of what you're choosing I, and i think the sleep on night test is is also is also right and you know being able to explain to the kids that mm. you know uh, one of the investors you know didn't result in fracking in the uh, fracking the world as she put it and i think that's fine too I mean, ultimately, the, the most of the world's capital market is really a secondary market, so that it doesn't impact yeah. um, what we do. Uh, I said most because you know, as we as we are seeing a lot of capital uh, capital <laughs> being yeah, raised, right. some mark, some markets are behaving more like they are primary sources of capital. So, um, so there's that. But uh, so, it, in some cases, it can make a difference. In some cases, it won't make a difference. Mm. Um, but if it helps you get invested and get, you know, get focused. And as one of our um, listeners basically noted, uh, one of the ESG funds has actually been doing very well. So, um, you, you know, I think number one tick is long time horizon. And as long as it is investment in, in assets that are not trying to rip people off, I think you're going to be doing just fine. So yeah, um, yeah I like that really lots. Very good. Um, yeah, look, uh, Lauren Heaps, I mean, the, the tax thing is, so firstly, Goodman's, I don't know. I've just had a quick squiz online. looks pretty decent, actually. Um, so now, I don't want that to be taken as a, as a recommendation because it's, you know, it's, it's a quick squiz. Um, but Tim Drew, look, fractional shares are attractive. US investing is attractive. I get why you'd want to do that. Um, there's plenty of different options to do it. I mean, you could open up an account directly with a US-based broker, quite honestly. There's another option with Interactive or, or Schwab or something else. You could um, trade from here. So look, there are plenty of options. Goodman's, Goodman's certainly one of them. Uh, Stake is another that we dealt with as a business before. I haven't used them personally. I have no, uh, again, recommendation on that company, but there's, there's plenty of options out there, but Goodman seems perfectly fine. Just be careful, as always, I'm sending who owns the shares if they're a US-based broker um, and you want to make sure they are CIPIC registered so your investments are insured. Please check that. Please, please check that. Um, don't take undue risks. Even save a couple of bucks in brokerage. In terms of tax file numbers, mate, I'm not a tax accountant in this doc. Um, a couple of quick things. If you set up an account in your name but with their TFN, the ATO will still believe it's there. It's, it's in their interest, right? So you can't kind of legally legalize it to avoid the tax implications. If the TFN is in the kid's name and the ATO believes the shares are bought for the kid's benefit, 
then they will be subject to 66% tax rates once they earn more than I think it's 400 bucks a year in interest uh, or dividends. Um, there is massively um, onerous tax rates for unearned income for miners. Um, no, it's not fair, but it's because scumbags in the past split their income and pretended that their three-year-old kid earned 100 grand in dividends uh, and, and got no tax because they were a minor. Um, the government decided that was, that was tax avoidance and they changed the rules and that's why the rest of us are stuck with that. Um, so that being said, just be, be really, really careful. Uh, trying to do it half in your own, half in theirs. The ATO will take a view on that. If, if it's their TFN, the ATO will almost certainly say it's their shares, even if it's in your name, and the tax will be payable by their account, potentially at onerous levels if they get a decent amount of dividend income or, or interest. And again, it might, won't be now, but it could be in 5, 10, 15 years' time. So just, just be a little bit careful with that, just for the record. Um, if you have a strong suspicion you won't hit that threshold, then that's maybe fine. Uh, but just be careful. As you say, it will. there will be a CGT event at some point, uh, whether it's in the, at the point of transfer or the point of sale. It's kind of immaterial. For what it's worth, though, if you can put it off longer, obviously everyone's better off that way. So it may well be you might want to open an account, for example, in your name with your TFN uh, and then you let them sell the shares at whatever point they want to. You pay the tax on the, on the gain out of their money and then give them the difference. Um, that would work quite well. It means you can kind of leave the, leave the money in the account for as long as possible and helping it compound as much as, as far as you can go. So just, just be a little bit careful with that one. Um, as always, get personal tax advice, please. Good accountants can be hard to find when it comes to international shares in particular, but investing for kids could be a straightforward one. They should have a, a better view on. And lastly, good work with getting a better rate. That's awesome. Any other comments on that, Doc? No, I have nothing more to add. Let's rattle through them. Question from Matt. Hey, guys, great podcast and definitely more stimulating than the endless coronavirus reporting. We're doing our best. i got to say, I'm not going to bag anybody else, but there are some podcasts listening to it. All I've done over the last three weeks is talk about bloody coronavirus. And I've got to say, I can't listen to the episodes right now. I don't know about you. I just, there's only so much I can actually take into this stuff. And I just, I just, there's more, there's more going on. Not that coronavirus is massively important. It is. But there's only so much news you can actually take in. And frankly, there's so much it's worth taking in. Otherwise, your life kind of gets consumed by this stuff, right? Like it becomes, it becomes, you know, overbearing and kind of almost crushing at some level. It's like, okay, check the news, then kind of get on with life, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you know, this um, ongoing death count, case count, test mm. count, it, 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 can be, uh, it can be a mind-boggling, mind-numbing. And there's the, the Donald time, Trump so. live stream, the Scott Morrison live stream, there's all the state premiers individually being live streamed. I mean, you could literally do nothing other than watch bloody, you know, new breaking coronavirus news effectively for a long time. time. Anyway. Yeah. So Matt, Matt agrees. He says, my question for the podcast concerns setting goals in the investment journey. I love this question, mate. Stay tuned. I'm in my mid-50s and have happily enjoyed the benefits of compounding and weathering the ups and downs of the markets. Everything the fool promotes. Well done. And we absolutely do, Matt. Congratulations. Now I'm approaching a comfortable retirement. I'm questioning my investment goals and motivations. His question is, how do you set and adjust your own investment goals? Do you think once you are near a goal, you should de-risk your portfolio or do you keep the risk profile and reset your goals? I'm reluctant to reduce my risk profile because risk can sometimes be addictive. He says, P.S. Maybe we should be investing in bookshops because I've lost count of the number of people on video calls who have bookcases in the background. I like that. Keep up the great work, Matt. Matt's a nice observation. I, I, you guys can't see this, uh, but we're, we're recording this podcast in audio, but we're also using Zoom. And so Doc and I can see each other and, uh, and each of us can see the bookcase behind the other. So you, you're probably right, Matt. Maybe that is the, maybe that is the, the best investment of 2020 is maybe, maybe some Ikea shares. I'm not sure. All right, Doc. So question, how do you go about setting your investment goals and how do you, should you think about changing them as the goals get closer? 
Man, this is a brilliant question. Actually, I love it. Um, it, it it's right. also it's it's a uh, well, you, you know. So I haven't really thought about this very clearly, and I think this, there's a lot of this is where I think you know talking to a you know financial advisor, a planner, and helping sort of you know because it is linked to, uh, I guess you know, are you retired? Are you retiring? What are you planning on doing? Yeah. And and things like that, right? So if you have like, I mean, if somebody had like, if I had. Uh, needs if i decided that i'm going to retire and i needed you know a certain amount of spending uh cash i would actually have that in cash or <clears throat> something close enough that's cash equivalent while i think my, well so i can only answer for myself my, my own i i can't see changing my investment approach substantially because if i'm investing over a period of 30 40 years then i would expect that i have made enough in capital growth. And therefore, if I can quarantine a portion of it in cash or cash equivalent, the remainder can continue being invested, right? right. And, and how much is the proportion, how you, you, you divide it up is really, really hard to answer. I mean, it's going to depend on a whole, whole host of, you know, personal circumstances and needs and goals and things like that. But yeah, at least at this point, I don't foresee changing. So I mean, the question of changing your well, I mean, if you like to take higher risks in return, higher return, then and if it has worked over an investment time frame of you know two, three decades, then why would you change it? Um, yeah. I think that's a very fair question to ask. I mean, right now I feel like I wouldn't change it, but I, I when I get there, I don't know yeah. um, what I would do. So that would be my you know very roundabout answer to uh, this thing. It's again, yeah, that's those are my thoughts really. I'll add a couple, mate. There's a couple of just kind of slogany kind of phrases that actually are real and, 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 and valuable. The first is sometimes the biggest risk is not taking enough risk. So if you're to de-risk your portfolio and only be in cash, for example, you may not even cover inflation, let alone growth of expenses, particularly in healthcare and stuff as you get old, money you're going to need, and you want to see grow over time. So my first thought is don't de-risk so much as to actually be taking on more risk to your lifestyle, not your actual asset prices, but your lifestyle itself, your, your life, um, that can be the first one. Second thing on the flip side is Buffett's got a great quote. He talks about um, people using, in this case, leverage, but think about it as risk in general. He talks about risking what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. In other words, if you had enough and you were gonna roll that on red or black at the casino, it would make not much sense, right? You have two, two times enough, or you could have zero. And at some point you're like, you know what, the, the, the risk and return there, even if, you just, even if you define it numerically, on a lifestyle basis is bigger than that because risking what you have and need, if you had, I don't know, let's say you want a million bucks to retire on, right? And, and that, that was needed to fund your lifestyle. You could take out a 5% dividend out of that, 50 grand a year, paid for, paid for retirement, that's what you want. Now you could try and invest riskily and try and make that $2 million. And yes, your lifestyle would improve, if you get it wrong and your, your portfolio falls to 600 grand, all of a sudden your 50 grand a year becomes 30 grand a year at that same 5% dividend yield, right? So, and again, there's different ways of doing it, but just, just as an illustration, was it really worth the, the, the risk of trying to double that money for the trade-off, which is not, you know, 100% upside, 40% downside. Normally you'd say, well, that's, a, that's often a bet worth making. But in this case, if it meaningfully changes your retirement income in a negative way, it probably wasn't a risk worth taking. So. I'll throw all that out there for what it's worth. And I'll answer with one other uh, observation. That is, most people think about their financial lives as, 
retirement being some sort of massive break point in the trend, right? It goes from, I, I'm, I'm investing now, I'm living in retirement. And, and there's some sort of you know, magical door you pass through where everything has to change. Most people, once they get to, I've said this before a couple of podcasts, Doc, I think, once you get to 65, you've got a really, really high probability of living another 20, 25 years. Really, really high. Average life expectancy in Australia is 82-ish, I think, from memory, mate. And that's for everybody. That includes, as I've said before, infant mortality. That includes childbirth. That includes you know, young blokes being young and stupid. Once you get to late 50s, 60, 65, the odds of having a much longer life than average actually go up phenomenally because you avoided those mortality events in the first half of your life. So as an investor, if you're 55, you might be thinking, I'm only 10 years from retirement. That's my time horizon. I would encourage you to think, actually, no, I'm probably going to live to 95. Therefore, I've got a 40-year time horizon, and that's what I need to be thinking about. So I actually agree with Doc. I think not changing your strategy, if it's working for you thus far, and, and you have a reasonable to continue working, I think continuing to do what you've always done is probably the smartest strategy, right? Because you've worked out something that works for you. And so whatever that is, I, I, would, I would be inclined to keep going and, and let it do its thing. If you get to a point, though, to, that, the flip side, just back to that, the risk thing, if you get to a point where you have well and truly more than enough, and at some point the upside is not worth the downside, you know, it's the old thing about, you know, if, if Warren Buffett gets an extra billion dollars, you reckon he notices? I bet you he doesn't. Um, you know, how hard does he need to work for the extra, extra billion dollars? Probably not very. Probably doesn't matter that much. Um, on the flip side, you know, losing, and if he lost a billion, it wouldn't matter either, by the way, because he's that rich. But you know what I mean? Conceptually, taking some risk off the table would actually make sense at some level just because any, any loss of, of lifestyle is simply not worth it, given you don't have to take that gamble. I have nothing to add to that. My next one comes from Bernard. G'day, Scott and Doc. Keep up the great work. Someone has to. Thank you, mate. I'm taking this COVID time to reassess the composition of my portfolio. This is another great question, Doc. I'd appreciate you sharing your thoughts on how you've constructed or continue to build your portfolios and what you consider small and large positions in companies. <coughs> Excuse me. I often hear you say, take a small initial position. But what does that mean? 0.5%, 5% or something else? Also, are you all from the beginning, guys, or buying thirds? Do you let your winners run and do you have lots of small, whatever that means, positions or a few large ones? I learn a lot from hearing about how others go about it. Uh, he then talks to you, well, he says, thanks for your question, my question in January this year. I luckily chose to rebalance my holdings, had cash on hand when the drop happened. Big smile. Thanks to you guys, I kept my head, tried to be greedy when others were fearful. Truth is, I was a bit fearful too and bought companies I've been admiring for years and added to existing positions. Awesome. However, seeing some of those trades drop further rattled me, but I kept thinking, think long-term, be a net buyer of stocks, market goes up in the long-term. Full on, Bernard. Bernard, thank you, mate, for that uh, great question. Thank you for the feedback too, mate. That's, uh, yeah, again, as we've said in other response to other questions, we're really, really pleased that our message, as much as we bang on about it, actually is getting through and helping you. So to the extent we've helped you, mate, uh, thank you, and we're glad we got the chance. You've also done the work yourself, so congratulations to you for having the... The, the wherewithal to, to actually just get on with it and do what you needed to do, even though you felt a bit fearful. I think we all did. Um, it's great you've been able to kind of push on and invest anyway, mate. That's exactly exactly right. <coughs> Doc, I'll have first week in this one, mate, only because I only throw to you and it gets a bit boring with the back and forth of, you know, me asking you about anything else to cover. So I'll let you cover as much as you want at the end and finish off. Um, Bernard, I'm, I tend to build my portfolio organically. I don't really have a set percentage I'm trying to get to of any position in, any, in my portfolio. I'm not trying to get, you know, 20 companies with 5% each or you know, 50 companies with, you know, two or one or 3% each, kind of depending on whatever. 
I tend to build it organically as I go. As I add money, I'm looking for the next best opportunity. And sometimes that next best opportunity will be a business that I already have enough of and I won't buy more. So to give an example, corporate travel management has been massively sold off. Um, it seems like it's going to survive and, and, and thrive. At eight, nine dollars, like, man, it looks kind of, you know, reasonably inexpensive. Maybe it's worth buying. I have a, a very large corporate travel position now, much like, much smaller than it used to be. But proportionally, even if that was my best idea, I'm not even sure that it necessarily was, but it's one I wouldn't be adding to just because I've got enough. So, you know, but so I don't I don't necessarily always buy my single best idea, but I try and add the best company I can to my portfolio in the context of what I already own, diversification, both currency, industry, geography. Um, you know, so I try and do it thoughtfully, but I start with what's the best idea and then does that one deserve its position in my portfolio as new money, a new investment? If it is, then I do. If, I, if it's not the best idea for some reason or other, I don't and I go on to number two. So that's generally how I do it. There's, there's not a lot more than that. I'm not a buy in thirds kind of guy. Everyone's different. Um, I will just simply buy, you know, with my, if I've got $1,000 to invest, I'll buy $1,000 of whatever I think is next best idea. Again, using those criteria. Um, it may not be a full position often because I want to eventually have more than that just because I've only got a thousand bucks in the back pocket right now. That's why I'll invest um, and kind of go from there. That's that's kind of how I tend to invest. So I just kind of add regularly, not because I want to buy in third necessarily, just because depending on having your portfolio and how much you've got to invest, um, you know, taking a 5% position, if you've got a $100,000 portfolio, for example, means saving five grand at a time, take a full position. I'm not, I'm not, not buying five grand because I don't think it's worth buying. I just buy with the money I've got. So it's very, very, very organic. Um, I do also let my winners run, generally speaking. I've made mistakes on that in the past, but generally speaking, that's my approach. I tend to be slow to buy and slower to sell. Uh, that means I also have some losers in my portfolio that I'm happy to keep because letting my winners run or letting theses play out, the longer, if you're right about the stock purchase decision, letting them do their thing is probably smarter than trying to get out too quickly. So that's my general view. Uh, pretty organic, pretty kind of, you know, add as I go, reassess the current portfolio uh, components as I add more to my portfolio and kind of add thoughtfully according to what I already own and where I think the best ideas are. Doc, how about you? Um, yeah, so I think it's sort of similar, slightly different maybe. So um, I am really slow to sell, uh, similar to Scott. I mean, the my sell criteria is that if, a company has really not executed on what I think it is going to execute and that it has repeatedly failed over a period of time, and the period of time tends to be long, then I would look to sell it. So that's, the, you know, and I am generally not looking actually to, to you know, sell something <clears throat> so I can buy something else. I tend not to do that because that just compounds um, the potential for error. Now, in terms of buying, I'm slightly different. I usually have a watch list of ideas and um, uh, that I look at. There might be a company that I really you know, discovered I liked and I just didn't buy because I have no money at that time or I was not investing at that time or we had written about it or something and therefore got precluded from, you know, we got precluded from buying. Then I would not buy it and be on the watch list. And then when I've had funds, I would look to buy. Most of my co companies that I tend to buy, I am looking for... Um, uh, you know, they'll have stable companies like, you know, or, or relatively stable companies like Apple and things like that. Um, but I'd also have companies that are, um, you know, high growers, more uncertain and things like that. And those, 
I actually really buy over a period of time. And I do so, I mean, like, whether I, you know, I like the idea of thirds, but it's not similar to Scott. I don't have a specific position size in my mind. Um, I don't start off that, oh, I need this position to be like a 3% position and I'm going to buy 1%, 1%, 1%. I don't do that. Uh, but I do like if I buy something that I think is, you know, like it's, it's a higher risk, I loan less off, I would typically buy small, you know, so whether you want to call it buy, and when I say small, you know, it could be like 1% allocation, you know, roughly. Um, I would generally not buy a large piece of any company at the first go. I never do that. Um, unless I have very high conviction, uh, which is, again, is hard to have if you are, you know, looking at it for the first time, right? And, and, and then as, as similar to Scott, like, I mean, I have a bunch of companies. I, then some of them I, I like, some of them are, are new, some of them are smaller allocations, and I just allocate over time. Um, the other thing I do is I generally try to buy on the way up which is counterintuitive, but you know, if the stock is going up, typically it means that this, the company has been performing. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the stock price has actually caught up to what you would think its long-term value is, right? So, um, but if the execution is good, then I would buy along with the execution. Um, so my average cost basis actually tends to go up for, uh, for a lot of the things that I own. Um, so that's how I do it. Then in terms of when I say largest position, like, like I would have, so I used to, I'll backtrack here a little bit. I used to own a lot more stocks. I have over time reduced the space, but I still probably own more stocks than I don't remember the exact card, but I probably own more than what, you know, say Scott would own. Again, this is, this is really individual style thing. And, and then I sort of look at four, five, 6% as a full position, but what I don't do is I don't really trim. Now, that's not something that I recommend people to do because um, I might have a 18% position, which I have not trimmed, but, you know, like 18% is a large position. Like, so when I, when I run a portfolio service, I would actually be trimming absolutely at that, you know, and it's, it's counterintuitive largely because, you know, one of the things with investing is you have to manage um, expectation and you have to manage the, uh, the behavioral aspect, right? So if, you're, if I'm running a portfolio, which I'm running for, say, other people, then I have to make certain assumptions there as well in terms of, you know, how people would deal with large allocations and things like that. I am okay. I realize the impact of an 18% allocation, but, you know, you have to really think hard about what an 18% or 20% allocation could do um, to a portfolio. For example, if a 20% allocation fell by 50% over a period of time, that would have a significant impact on your returns and in the near term, right? And and that's something that you have to think about and realize. And, and you know, it probably doesn't matter in the long term. If it doesn't matter in the long term and you're okay with the volatility, then that's fine. But it's again, something that you have to consider. So um, yeah, so, and, and the last point would be that, so when I said five full position, typically between say four to 6%, I think of it as full position. Typically I would not look to add to those unless I had super high conviction. I would not be adding to try to bump them up. And, but I let them grow organically. As I said, I don't trim. Uh, I'm, I'm not a person who trims for, because, you know, I want to get to a specific allocation, things like that. I always look at using new money um, to sort of manage my position sizes. So that's what I do. It tends to work reasonably well, but my portfolio also tends to be, you know, fairly, um, I would say volatile 
you know, um, I'm used to seeing it like, you know, it can go down by 40% over a, over a short period of time. <laughs> and you just have to accept that uh, then it works with, with what you hold. So I think the large the answer, there's different ways to do it. And, you know, there's no one right way. And, you know, Scott has large positions in some things and he's willing to ride the, you know, the ups and downs with it. It's just, again, what you feel comfortable with and you're willing to um, tolerate. The last thing you want, the last thing, absolutely, like the worst thing that can happen to people is you hold a large position because it's you're, you have conviction, it's going up, so you hold it. And then, you know, for some reason, it starts going down. And you sell it. And, and most often what would happen, you'll be probably selling at the bottom. That is something you want to really think carefully about position sizing from that point of view. How are you going to tolerate the up and the down? The upside, everybody loves it when it goes up, right? And how do you tolerate the downside is what really is going to matter. So that's what I would say is sort of in terms of how, you know, portfolio, personal portfolio management may work. Very good. Thank you, sir. I, uh, let's move on to... Let me see. We're almost almost out of time, mate. So let me let me see if I can grab a couple of questions. Um, here's one I kind of like just because again a very different question on, on a different topic. Hi, Scott and Doc. This is from Jordan. I have a question regarding UBS's decision to close six of their ETFs earlier this month. They closed their Aussie Dividend Yield ETF and International Ethical ETF, among others. Now I'd like to know what happens if I'm a shareholder of one of these ETFs. I understand it will keep trading till May 2020. But surely no one will buy it. Does the fund automatically sell my holding at a certain date? I'm very confused and it's making me slightly concerned in my position in other ETFs. Would appreciate a response. Thanks, guys. Now, it is uh, obviously the UBS ETF closure is very specific to Jordan and a few other investors. Um, probably not very many given that that's why UBS is probably closing it because they didn't have enough money invested in those ETFs. But the, the follow-up question, mate, was the reason I wanted to raise this one um, so firstly, what, what happens, but also should Jordan be concerned about the, his position in other ETFs? And that was why I think it's worth answering for him and for other people. I'm just trying to get a, get a response on that. So EBS is closing its ETFs. They're doing so, I believe, I'm speculating because they've still got not enough money invested in them. It's not a part of their investment strategy or, or, or business that's returning them enough money. Um, that's ordinarily because, generally speaking, because they're simply not making enough money based on the money that's allocated to, to that, the costs that they're incurring to run that strategy. Interesting the ETFs actually in decline, mate, um, or these ETFs in decline, given how much money is being thrown at passive investing right now. Um, so that's a little bit surprising to me. It probably is a bit of a winner-take-all kind of category, I guess, at some level, particularly because costs, as they come down, favour the large. Um, UBS isn't big, by the way, but maybe these particular funds weren't big enough. The... The, the funds. So just to answer the question, Jordan, about about UBS specifically, the ETF is being the ETF is being closed in May. Now, between now and then, will anyone buy them? Probably not. But the ETFs are already marked to market anyway. The pricing is set based on the value of the underlying assets. So this is one scenario where it actually doesn't matter as long as UBS is doing their job, and I'm sure they will be. How many buyers or sellers there are, the price is not set by the interaction of buyers and sellers. In this case it's set based on the underlying value of the assets themselves. So this is one you don't have to worry about whether the buyers or sellers are there. Will anyone buy it? Probably not. No one's going to start a position in an ETF a couple of weeks out from being closed down, uh, which is fine. But but the the fund manager, the market maker, should be buying it back from you anyway if you want to, anyone wants to, at the current amount value. And they simply just um, effectively cancel those units, right? So because ETFs work the same way, if, bit more, if there's more buyers than sellers, the price doesn't get pushed up. They just create more units. Similarly, on the other side, if no one's buying them, there's simply just less units being, or more units being uh, cancelled, therefore less units in existence after that fact. So it shouldn't impact the pricing as long as UBS is doing their job. And as I said, I'm sure they are. 
Um, the, the way it happens is at closure, if you still own units in that fund, they will simply send you a check or an electronic transfer these days uh, for the value that's left. And again, that should be almost exactly the same as the unit price. There will be some wind up costs apparently in that one, which we a fraction of your shareholding. So be mindful of that. I would be inclined to sell now at a given price as long as it was trading at roughly net tangible asset value, although the market should have already priced in the fact that at closure, there'll be some closure costs. So um, yeah, pretty un pretty unattractive, pretty unimpressive performance there from UBS and that ETF. I think you should not be a slightest bit concerned about the other ETFs in your portfolio because again, if the worst came to worst, they'd be closed down at the net tangible asset value or close enough to it, uh, less a couple of closure costs. So there's just no, no reason to be too worried about that. Of course, the other way around is simply go with the big ones. So uh, Vanguard, um, is it BlackRock, mate, that owns iShares? Um, I mean, these, these, are, these are big guys who are going to be around forever. Uh, I, I, you know, again, there's, there's very, very little downside. Even if they are closed, the chance they're closed is pretty small. So I don't think you should be worried about the other ETFs is probably the best, the best answer I can give you. Doc, I did a bit of monologue there, mate. Do you have any other thoughts on that one? No, I think you've covered everything. So I wouldn't belabor and make it longer for us. So let's go on to the next one. Or the last <laughs> All one right. Should we make this the last one? Are we kind of almost at time, do you reckon? Yeah, I think let's make one, one last one and then we'll call it for today. It's never can get quite through enough, can we? All right, I've left this one. Make sure we've answered this one because this is from a female investor. Now, this is interesting. The stats off, request no first name used, just the code name Buzz. I don't, I'd love to know the story behind that. Buzz, if you're, I do know your first name because you mentioned you, you've given it to us here, but I, I won't mention it because you asked us not to. It, just send us an email, let us know why Buzz. It's a story there. There's going to be some kind of cool story behind it. Anyway, Buzz says, Hi, Scott Knock. Firstly, a yay, please, as I am a female investor. Yay. I know from listening to your podcast, this will make you very, very happy. And it does, Buzz. Thank you. I started taking an interest in share investing in June and July 2019 and joined up to share advisor and dividend investor. Have acted on 12 of your recommendations, albeit in very small dollar amounts. Figured it was better to be in the market than in the bank. Absolutely. Given the current interest rates. In April this year, I joined, uh, took a leap of faith and joined Discovery 2020. My portfolio holds the 20 small cap recommendations, three ETFs and nine companies from SA and DI. Great start, oh, that's nice work. Other than the ETFs, all are Aussie listed companies. I feel I have enough Australian exposure. So here's the question. What do I need to know and do to be able to buy or sell stocks on the NASDAQ, please? I was tempted to act on the most recent stock advisor recommendation, but honestly don't know where to start when it comes to buying US shares. And I'm really put off by the exchange rate, fees, etc. I feel the Aussie dollar wouldn't buy much in the US at the moment either. Would really appreciate if you could point me in the right direction. Many thanks, full on. And, oh dear, I support Doc in his staunch resistance to Instagram. Buzz, you were doing so well until that point. So well. <laughs> Come on, join Team Instars. Maybe you should look up Buzz on Instagram. Maybe it's Instagram.com slash Buzz. Maybe I'll find out who that is. All right. Uh, so, Doc, you're a US investor. You've been doing it for a long time. So try and cast your mind back or maybe you put yourself in Buzz's shoes and say, if you were starting today, what does Buzz need to know and do to start investing in the US? And what about the fees and exchange rates and stuff like that? Okay. So step one, you need a brokerage account that would allow you to 
uh, buy and sell U.S. stocks easily. You could do that through Comsec, but you're going to be or one of the other broker brokers that you use. Typically, what's going to happen is you're going to land up paying a lot more in brokerage, and that is going to be expensive. So uh, the solution, the first step, I think, is to set up a brokerage account. Um, I use Charles Schwab. You know, here's a beautiful Charles Schwab, and you know, we don't have any relationship with uh, with these guys. The trading fees are exactly zero dollars. You pay nothing in brokerage. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, you could set up an account with Charles Schwab. You could set up. You know, I have another account with uh, Saxo Bank, which allows you to trade across multiple different um, uh, multiple different uh, markets. So you could do that. Um, there are other options. I think you can look at IG markets. You could look at Stake. You could look at um, uh, even NAB trade, actually, NAB trades uh, fees are very similar to the fees for trading on the ASX. But uh, yeah, so I think you need a brokerage account. That's number one. Number two, you need to learn. I guess if you're interested in individual stocks, you need to learn about um, uh, individual companies. So you already have ShareAdvisor. You said you're a member of ShareAdvisor. ShareAdvisor has a US rec every month. Um, so you could look there you know there are some wonderful ideas on the share advisors uh, us side of the scorecard uh, those will serve as uh, as a good starting point to read about the businesses think about the one businesses that you like one of the advantages i think of, of international investing in general is a lot of the stuff that you use in your daily life and you see and you love and you experience they're all international right so the mastercard on your uh, on your pocket or uh, you know, your Apple iPhone or whatever else, they, you know, they, they, a lot of these things are traded in. Search engine, of course, Doc? Um, uh, yeah, the Bing search engine uh, from Microsoft. Even Google, maybe? Uh, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, some stuff like Google, <laughs> um, which is basically Alphabet. All of those companies are global, and most of them are listed on New York Stock Exchange or yeah. on NASDAQ. So you could buy them. Uh, and it's the familiarity sort of uh, thing helps. So I think researching the companies and you know, uh, ShareAdvisor is, is, is a good one where you'd find mid to large cap uh, recommendations for uh, US stocks. We have a service here called Shooting Stars, which looks at more the small cap, um, uh, small cap end of, uh, of you know, higher growth sort of stocks. We're looking for those, again, all US focused. We recently started a service called uh, Cloud Disruptors, which focuses exclusively on um, cloud native stocks. And that is not just US, but US and uh, Shredder Focus. Again, there you'll find research. So again, research is, is important. So brokerage platform and research. And, and then the last comment about, um, about exchange rate. I think a lot of people worry about exchange rates. And I, for one, actually do not worry about exchange rates. And I'll explain mm-hmm. that. Why? The reason I don't worry about exchange rate is I'm effectively thinking that, well, you know, if a company is going to like five bag or 10 bag or something over a period of time, then the exchange rate really is a small factor in the total returns. That's number one. Uh, number two is over a period of time, just like your dollar cost average into buying stocks, sometimes you're going to get a good exchange rate. Sometimes you're going to get a not so good exchange rate. And, you know, over time, it's going to kind of, you're going to get the average exchange rate over a period of time. Um, and I think for some, and for an investor with a long time horizon, uh, it wouldn't. I wouldn't guarantee that it's not going to matter, but it. I think it's going to be less of a concern, um, uh, the exchange rate overall. So I very comfortably invest. Um, it just expands your investment horizon. It gives you access to companies that you don't have here. 
uh, get you access to companies that you see every day, you use every day. Um, and, and, and in all honesty, it gives you access to some phenomenal compounders. Like, you know, the, you know just to imagine investing in something like Netflix 10 years ago, that would be a 27 bagger. Uh, 27 times return or something like that. I just recently looked it up. It's very close. I think 27 or 25. Again, if you're looking at that sort of return over a long period of time, then the exchange rate is really not a big deal in that, in that, um, you know, in the bigger schemes of things. So yeah, if you're regularly investing, I think it, it shouldn't matter. Yes, the exchange rate is not that great, but you know, I don't know where the exchange rate is going. So that's how I look at it. And that's what I do. Yep, very good. Mate, I'm going to add to that very quickly to say, Buzz, great idea to invest in the US. Um, some of the companies that are literally changing and inventing the future are listed there. Um, I think every investor should have more exposure there anyway. Um, so good on you for having a go. I'm going to say just <laughs> this, is the, this is the least helpful but hopefully most helpful comment, which is just do it. Um, there was always reasons not to. I can remember opening my first Australian brokerage account and it was a nine-page form and you needed this bit of information, that bit of information, and then you had to get on this website and how do I place a trade? And you probably remember the same thing yourself, Buzz, when you started investing. Same kind of thing, right? You're like, that, that, that's how you're feeling now about the US. Again, I, I feel the same way. I opened an Options Express account way back in the day when before Charles Schwab brought them out. Um, and same thing, right? You think, oh, how does it work? And how's the money go? And what do I have to worry about? And I get all that. Um, I, just, I, I guess I'm just saying, you know, the inertia can be the killer of, of opportunity. And so I think for most people, just, you know, the old Nike line, just do it is, is a really important one. Not, not, I'm not saying do it, you know, um, thoughtlessly or rashly or, um, you know, take your time by all means. And, and I'm not saying, you know, rush it out without having done the thinking and whatever, but if you feel like you want to, um, so the, the other question is, what do I need to know? The best thing you need to know is it's actually not that different for anything else. Um, the only thing is the, the major difference is that you don't, settle a trade from a separate linked bank account. The money must be in the brokerage account before you make the trade. So that's the only key difference. Once you've got cash in the account, just literally making the trade is pretty straightforward. You jump in as you would normally and say, I want to buy X shares of company Y. Let's say it's Apple just for Doc's benefit. I want to buy five shares of Apple. Um, you put it in, you type in the code, you put in the number, you put in the price and you press buy. It's, it's kind of that simple. It is out of hours sometimes. So there is a, the, um, there's exchange rate, there's time zones and I get all that stuff. I got to say, for me, having done it um, was one of the best things I've ever done. It was just starting as much as it was painful and difficult and you know, time-consuming and all the stuff that it already feels like. And I said to put you off. I said that to acknowledge and recognize that that will take time and effort, uh, but it's worth doing. So just, you know, honestly, no, no huge tri- uh, tips or traps, I don't think, Doc. I can't hear anything kind of concerning anyone needs to know. Um, just, just a matter of finding a, finding a broker you like. Schwab is great. We both use Schwab. I would actually say, honestly, Doc, if someone's getting started, they have a Comtech account. It's only nine ninety five US for trades on on the Nasdaq. Um, if you know, we would say get cheaper trades if you can, or free trades if you can. By all means, save your twenty bucks if you can do that. But if you would feel better, again, if you're an investor who's kind of a little bit hesitant, start with that. I actually started with I started with a Comtech account, believe it or not, my US trades, um, and I was paying seventy nine dollars a trade at the time. Now that was a stupidly large amount of money, and and. I changed Options Express because it was, I think, fourteen ninety five a trade at that point. Um, so I saved a lot per trade, but the the Comsec trades were still well and truly worthwhile. I, I made money out of them. I got started. I compounded a decent rate. I added money regularly. Those things that happen are always, always worth doing. So um, don't be too put off by the specifics. Don't get too don't, don't you know don't don't get too bogged down in trying to choose all the options. Pick one you'd like and you know and you're happy to go with, and then push ahead. Any more on that, Doc? 
No, sir. We have come to the end of our Sunday mailbag episode. Thank you all for taking some time and having a listen. We hope we've been interesting, informative, educational, maybe even a little bit funny, mostly Doc, but occasionally me. Uh, but before we go, and if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or, of course, your favourite Android podcast app. If you like what we're doing, give us a rating, throw us some stars, tell your friends, leave us a review, spread the foolish word. If the feedback from some of our listeners today and on Friday has been anything, it's been that hopefully, not because we're necessarily smarter or better or, well, we're more attractive, but we're not necessarily smarter or better than anybody else, but by listening to this podcast, we've helped some listeners navigate what has been a really choppy market. And we're sure if your friends are either investing already or looking to invest, we reckon we could probably give them a hand along that journey. Podcast free. Tell them to give it a go. And of course, you can get some foolishness by going straight. Uh, so I get it straight to your inbox by going to Triple R. Doc, I've been talking for way too long. Let me start that all over again. You can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money and not before time for my voice and my brain completely give out. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.